Chapter 10, Part 1 of Women, Suffrage, and Politics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Gracie Lynn, Wichita. Woman Suffrage and Politics, The Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Schuler. The Invisible Enemy. Those invisible influences that were controlling elections, that invisible and invincible power that for 40 years kept suffragists waiting for the women's hour, for 40 years circumvented the coming of suffrage, that power that made Republican leaders hesitate to fulfill their promises to early suffragists, restrained both dominant parties from endorsing women's suffrage, kept legislators from submitting suffrage amendments, and organized droves of ignorant men to vote against suffrage amendments at the polls when its agents had failed to prevent the submission of the question, was manifestly the power that inherited in the combined liquor interests. The vested interest in human slavery exerted a controlling influence over American politics for more than half a century, but the public was never deceived concerning that fact, for its battles were fought in the open and its political compromises were frankly acknowledged. But when the vested interest in liquor arose to dictate terms to parties and politicians, it executed its strategical moves in secret. The political wires laid with purposeful care to trip the feet of men were unseen by the public. The action of men, legislatures, and parties had the appearance of being the reflection of public opinion. Victorious movements record their history. Vanquished ones rarely do. The men who buy or sell votes do not confess. Political leaders do not acquaint their own party following with the deals they make. Full knowledge, therefore, of the extent to which the liquor trade exercised a dominating influence over the politics of the United States for a generation will probably never be revealed, but enough indisputable evidence has been accumulated to establish the fact that it did wield that influence and to reveal also much of the general plan by which results were achieved. In 1862, while the nation was absorbed in the life-and-death struggle of the Civil War, the United States Brewers Association was quietly organized. Although other reasons for organizing were afterwards given by the brewers, the weight of evidence indicates that the main object of the association was the political protection of the trade. It is a fact that this organization continued to be the chief directing power in the political defense of the liquor interest until the end of the struggle. At its convention in 1867, the association boldly warned political parties to take due notice that it would declare war upon all candidates of whatever party who were favorably disposed toward the total abstinence cause. Although no more resolutions of this character were passed, and no public pronouncements of this nature were made by the leading brewers in the years that followed, there was no break in carrying out that policy. When the first decision was made to include women's suffrage as an indirect menace to the liquor cause is unknown, but in 1867, when the Kansas suffrage campaign was on, suffragists noticed that in all parts of the state, local liquor men were conspicuous workers against the suffrage amendment. It was in 1869 that the legislature of Wyoming extended the vote to women. It was in that same year that the Prohibition Party was organized. 
these unrelated but outstanding events may have called the attention of the trade to a possible connection between the two reforms, but far more definite causes for fear of women on the part of the liquor interests soon appeared. In 1873-4, an uprising of Christian women against the saloons of Ohio startled the church, the saloon, and the nation. Groups of women, well known for their virtue and piety, appeared before the doors of the saloons, or at times entered, read passages of scriptures, sang hymns, and kneeling, prayed fervently for the abolition of all rum shops. Out of this crusade, the Women's Christian Temperance Union emerged in 1874. It grew in size and influence with astonishing rapidity, spreading to all states of the Union and carrying with it much of the crusade's spirit that had created it. Women thus became an unmistakable factor in the movement which was rapidly pressing forward the demand for total abstinence for the individual and prohibition for the state. Their meetings filled churches, bridged denominational differences, enlisted the clergy and influential churchmen. More than all else, the organization aroused women and trained them for public work as no movement had yet done. Soon, the Women's Christian Temperance Union became the largest organization women had yet formed in any country. Its leader for many years, Frances Willard, was one of the world's greatest women, beloved by her followers and honored by all. She captivated audiences, disarmed their prejudices, and enrolled them in her cause. Under her inspiration, a great army of women, recruited chiefly from Orthodox Protestant churches, rapidly mobilized. It was doubtless because of these things that the press reports of the Brewers' Convention of 1881 included the account of the adoption of an anti-suffrage resolution to the effect that the Brewers would welcome prohibition as far less dangerous to the trade than women's suffrage because prohibition could be repealed at any time, but women's suffrage would ensure the permanency of prohibition. Thirty-two years afterward, President Rupert of the United States Brewers Association denied that the brewers had ever taken such action, but suffrage scrapbooks preserved the resolution and the brewers confessed to the Judiciary Committee of the Senate in 1918 that they had kept no minutes. Meanwhile, evidence had accumulated to prove conclusively that whether the Brewers had stated their hostility to women's suffrage in resolutions or not, they had ceaselessly demonstrated it in practice. Three official investigations into the political activities of the Brewers have been made and four large volumes of the evidence have been published. On January 9, 1915, the Attorney General of the State of Texas filed suit against seven breweries in the state charging the use of their corporate means and asset in politics and elections contrary to the laws of the state. In March 1916, indictments were brought against 100 Pennsylvania brewing companies and the United States Brewers Association by a federal grand jury. The indictments charged the brewing companies with the unlawful expenditure of money in the election of federal officials. Rather than have the investigation proceed, the brewers chose to plead guilty and pay a fine of a million dollars. In September 1918, the United States Senate called for an investigation by the Judiciary Committee into the charges of German propaganda by German brewers in association with the United States Brewers Association. The charges included the following. The United States Brewers Association, brewing companies, and allied interests have in recent years made contributions to political campaigns on a scale without precedence. 
and in order to control legislation in state and nation have exacted pledges from candidates to office, have subsidized the press and stipulated when contracting for advertising space with the newspapers that a certain amount be editorial space, the material to be furnished by the brewer's central office. They have set in operation an extensive system of boycotting of American manufacturers, merchants, and railroads, etc. Have on file political surveys of states tabulating men and forces for and against them, and that they have paid large sums of money to citizens of the United States to advocate their cause, including some in government employ. The press reported that some tons of documents were taken on subpoena from various offices and bureaus. Although the evidence was fragmentary, it made clear that a national political agency set up by the combined interests had long existed and that it supervised or was active in both prohibition and suffrage campaigns throughout the United States. This evidence, combined with the circumstantial and direct evidence supported by affidavits carefully preserved by the National American Women's Suffrage Association during a period of 50 years, shows the liquor interest in active opposition to women's suffrage on the following counts. 1. The same man or men who conducted the anti-prohibition campaign directed the anti-suffrage contest in legislatures, constitutional conventions, and referenda campaigns. 2. Money to oppose women's suffrage was taken from the funds placed in the hands of the political committees organized by the liquor interest to fight prohibition. 3. A given quota of votes to be secured against women's suffrage was customarily assigned each saloon in referenda campaigns. 4. By definite agreement in secret conferences, the liquor forces determined to conceal their opposition to women's suffrage so far as possible. 5. The liquor interest applied the boycott to men favoring women's suffrage as they did to those favoring prohibition. 6. By the same course of means, they sought contributions for anti-suffrage campaigns from firms with which they dealt. 7. In states reputed strong for both suffrage and prohibition, the attitude of congressmen and state legislators on both questions was reported to the national political committees of the liquor interest with equal care. 8. The allied organizations that were set up to oppose prohibition oppose women's suffrage by the same methods. To carry on these numerous campaigns required great sum of money. An attempt was made by the attorneys for the Senate Judiciary Committee to ascertain how much money had been raised annually by the liquor forces, from what sources it had been derived, and how it had been expended. These efforts brought forth little that was new. The brewer's officers, called on subpoena by the government, admitted as little as possible and remembered nothing of the importance, yet the evidence confirmed many suspicions and beliefs that had been based previously upon hearsay. It confirmed, for example, 1. That the United States Brewers Association and the Pennsylvania Brewers Association kept no minutes of their official proceedings. 2. That the practice of the United States Brewers Association to destroy check stubs and cancel checks with each bank balance was customary with the state's Brewers Association. 3. That a working agreement had existed for many years whereby the brewers furnished two-thirds and the distillers one-third of the campaign funds. 4. That the United States Brewers Association and the State Brewers Association each levied an annual tax of one-half cent to one cent per barrel on the output of member brewers, the amounts thus derived being dues chiefly expended in administration of the national and state associations. 
5. That a custom existed whereby contributions made to state political campaigns by the National Liquor Organization were based upon the stipulation that the state interests would raise an equal fund, although exceptions were doubtless made in the states with comparatively few liquor resources. 6. That funds for political campaigns were secured by making additional assessments as needed. In 1913, a contract was made whereby the brewers agreed to assess themselves three cents per barrel annually for a term of five years. The agreement to become operative when brewers representing 25 millions of barrels had subscribed. As more than that number entered into the agreement, the plan was carried out until the Prohibition Amendment was submitted. This plan supported a national fund only. The state association also assessed their member breweries according to state agreements in order to secure state campaign funds. The treasurer of the Brewers Political Committee of Nebraska in 1913 reported that the breweries of the state for eight years had never paid less than 65 cents per barrel and from that up to $1.10. It was admitted that an assessment of 20 cents per barrel for state campaign funds was not unusual and that 60 cents per barrel had been assessed in several states. The Texas Bureaus assessed themselves 65 cents per barrel. 7. That the largest known deposit of the United States Brewers Association in any one year was 1,400,000 in the year 1914, and its known deposits from 1913 to 1918 were 4,457,94, although the records for a portion of this time were lost so that the total was more. It is probable that few persons, if any, knew how much money was actually raised and spent by the liquor forces in any given year. The money did not pass through one treasury, and the trustees of the different funds made no acknowledged reports to each other. Each state conducted an independent campaign, raised its own money, and spent that contributed by all the national liquor organizations. As state laws became more and more drastic in their demand for public reports of campaign receipts and expenditure, it became increasingly necessary from the liquor viewpoint to conceal as far as possible both the source and amount of receipts and the nature of expenditures. This was easily done by dividing the funds among the different committees or bureaus, many being totally unknown to the public and therefore never called upon for reports. Some facts are known, however, and from them a fair estimate of the amount of money raised annually for campaigns may be made. It is a known fact, for instance, that 1,400,000 was deposited by the United States Brewers Association in 1914. Let us start with that and beat back to its likely sources. It is true that the total number of barrels from which campaign funds, as well as the assessment levies, were collected is a secret buried with destroyed bank books, but the usual half cent per barrel for dues plus the three cents per barrel assessment for campaign purposes agreed to in 1913 would bring in that 1,400,000 if the assessment had been levied on only 40 millions of barrels. 40 million barrels formed not more than two-thirds of the total barrelage of the country for that year. 
Allowing 100000 for the national administration expenses, the amount available from the bureaus for the campaigns was 1300000 At that time, the agreement in operation was that the brewers should furnish two-thirds and the distillers one-third of the campaign fund. So the brewers' quota of 1400000 was augmented by a distiller's quota of over 700000 making a total of 2100000 plus raised by the national liquor organizations. Now, it was the rule that the manager of each state campaign must raise within the state a sum equal to the sum given to that state's campaign fund from the national fund. If each state, therefore, merely duplicated its quota from the national fund, the total funds, national and state, available for campaign purposes reached the vast sum of $4 million. As a matter of fact, though some states may not have raised more than the necessary amounts to secure the national contribution, other states raise funds far in excess of those amounts. We know this because assessments of $0.05 cents upward to $2 per barrel were admitted and $0.20 cents was not unusual. In Ohio, where the hardest-fought battle between the Prohibition and the liquor forces was waged, and where women's suffrage was caught in the imbroglio and held fast for a dozen years, the annual output was about five millions of barrels, and it was admitted that the state paid 20 cents per barrel regularly during the years of its main struggle. Such a state assessment alone would have netted an annual fund of a million dollars. If state assessments of 20 cents per barrel applied on the total 40 million barrelage from which was raised the 1,400,000 known to have been deposited as the tribute from the two national liquor organizations, the result would have been 8 millions of dollars instead of the mere 2 millions plus necessary to match the national contributions. That the state funds approach this amount is supported by considerable evidence. For example, the manager of the anti-prohibition campaign in Texas wrote Adolf Bush in 1913 that plans to raise five and a half millions of dollars for their campaign had been completed and that it ought to be enough. Mr. Beese of Ohio, in a secret conference, said that the State's Brewers Association had spent half a million dollars in 1913 and would spend another in 1914. From all of which it seems fairly clear that the liquor funds spent in the political campaigns of the country ranged from four to ten millions of dollars a year. It was against such a crisis foe as this that suffrage, with its pitiful but consecrated dimes and dollars, dared raise its head. I will pledge my car fare, said a shabby little woman at an upstage suffrage meeting in the New York campaign of 1915, when pledges of money to the suffrage campaign were being made. I will pledge my car fare. I can walk to and from my work. There were other sources of money raising than the assessments upon the output of the liquor manufacturers. In a fervid speech made at a closed session of the United States Brewers Association in 1913 by Percy Andre, it was said that the Allied Interest of Ohio had paid out a million dollars in five years to perfect an organization which he declared performed campaign work with unerring accuracy. A National Retail Liquor Dealers Association, organized in 1893 with auxiliaries in each state, was also a political and financial ally. 
a system of assessments upon the sales of local dealers in order to secure campaign funds was the rule in this organization. The liquor retailers invented a new method, which was later adopted by the manufacturers and wholesalers. When paying bills for any and all supplies, such as plumbing, furniture, crockery, glassware, groceries, it became their custom to withhold a small percent with the explanation that should prohibition obtain, they would no longer be able to buy and as their creditor would lose trade to that extent, he surely ought to be willing to assist in the campaign to continue his own business. Although the liquor management of anti-suffrage campaigns was subrosia so far as possible, the same method of raising funds for the direct purpose of opposing women's suffrage was used in several states. Several of the covering letters were turned over to suffrage workers. In Montana, such a letter was sent out while the suffrage measures was pending in the legislature, and again after it had been submitted to the voters. That letter blithely connected the liquor interest and anti-suffrage in these words. The local wholesalers and retailers are working unanimously to maintain for Montana the proud position of being the wettest state in the Union. This takes money. We are preparing a statewide campaign against women's suffrage in this state. Our local retailers are doing all they can, but the burden is too heavy for them to carry alone, and it is only right that those who are enjoying and making a profit from the sale of their goods should help us in conserving for them their accounts and goods. A National Hotel Men's Association became an active and open opponent of prohibition and an active but secret opponent of women's suffrage. Druggists and other dealers in various kinds of liquors and tobacco manufacturers and dealers were also organized opponents of both movements. The money raised by these organizations was probably expended in their own activities, and no estimate of the amounts so used can be made, though they swelled the unknown total of the anti-prohibition and anti-suffrage campaign funds. Reports on women's suffrage were held to be as vital to the liquor interests as those on the prohibition. As the minutes of several secret conferences secured on the subpoena revealed, at a conference between the Interstate Conference Committee and the Board of Trustees of the United States Brewers Association, held at the Hotel Kimball, Springfield, Massachusetts, October 13, 1913, Oscar Smith, a Milwaukee brewer, said, Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the committee, I have been in this game fighting prohibition for about 30 years, and I want you to know that I learn something all the time. For the state of Wisconsin, I will have only a few words to say, that we are fortunate in having a good organization. In the last campaign, we had the usual bills, like every other state, county option, women's suffrage in about six different forms, and we had everything else, which were all defeated, and I can say that can be done only by organization and by active work of the brewers being on the job all the time and not leaving it to somebody else. Wisconsin's only referendum on suffrage was defeated in 1912. I am also a delegate from Nebraska. For eight years, I have been treasurer of the so-called executive committee consisting of three brewers from Omaha and two small brewers from the state. These five years have been doing all the work. The women's suffrage in the state we defeated two years ago at a tremendous expense, and we won in the state by about 9,000 votes. If they had carried the election, of course the state would have been dry. The Nebraska referendum on women's suffrage was defeated in 1914.
Mr. Dole of the Illinois State Brewers Association wanted to suggest and to implore that female suffrage be defeated at all hazards. As the result of experience we have had with two different subjects, I want to suggest to the gentlemen who are here a very serious matter that if you are living in liberal states which you have not the initiative and referendum and have not female suffrage, I want to implore you to defeat these two things at all hazards. Mr. Shalighting, South Dakota Brewer, said, We have some possibilities of winning if we get plenty of assistance. So far, we have been able to cope with these things. We have defeated county option by the vote of the people at four different times. We have defeated women's suffrage at three different times. And I want to say that this association, the United States Brewers Association, through the efforts of one gentleman, Mr. Edward Dietrich, has been able to cope with it, and he has always been fortunate in winning. A report on Iowa was presented to the Interstate Conference Committee of the United States Brewers Association by Henry Thunen, General Counsel of the Iowa Brewers Association, on June 10, 1915, in which he said, we are of the opinion that women's suffrage can be defeated, although we believe that the liquor interest should not be known as the contending force against this amendment. Action of some kind should be taken to assure a real and active campaign against this measure. To sum up what Iowa needs at your hands if you are disposed to interest yourselves in this state is, first, a contest on women's suffrage at the primary in 1916. Second, a contest for liberal senators at the election in 1916, and, if this fails, then, third, a contest at the polls on the Prohibitionary Amendment, which will be held at the general elections in 1917, unless otherwise provided by the legislature. The Bureaus were disposed to interest themselves in the state. They sent the assistance, and women's suffrage was announced as defeated in Iowa in 1916, although suffragists believed it was won. The struggle between temperance and liquor forces had reached its height in 1913. Local option authorized by the legislatures of most states had thrown large expanses of territory into the dry column. Statewide prohibition had been established in several states, and the issue was a crucial one in the politics of many others. Court decisions were notably more friendly to the temperance side of legal contests, but a far more important factor in the situation was the addition of many powerful manufacturers to the prohibition forces. The labor unions had striven long for employers' liabilities in cases of death and accident of employees, and such laws had been passed by many states. Manufacturers now discovered that accidents happened more often when men were under the influence of intoxicants and sought to protect themselves from this risk by advocating the legal removal of the cause. Another cogent factor pushing them toward prohibition was the argument that working forces would not be so depleted at the beginning of each work week if working men had no Saturday night and Sunday sprees to sleep off on Monday morning. A tremendous impulse was given prohibition through the addition of this new ally. Legislators, sensing a changed public opinion, became more independent and daring. The liquor traffic recognized the need of more money and more intensive campaigning than ever before. Onlookers saw the final battle emerging from the half-century struggle. End of chapter 10, part 1